Super humbled you uh, took some time out of your weekend to open up God's Word and study in a series that we've been going through called Taboo. Uh, we're looking at this subject that's mentioned over 2,000 times in our Bible, and it is about the pursuit of wealth and money and the ways in which we get sidetracked in those things, the ways in which we make money of greater value than people, of greater value than the God that we serve, and instead of it being a means to bless and honor God and a means to bless others around us, it becomes a means in which we disassociate from God and we no longer depend on God and we disassociate from uh, our neighbor. We don't need a neighbor. Everything becomes transactional. Therefore, we never sacrifice in relationship for those that are around us because everybody that's around us is really someone just to get something done for us. And so we want you to see wealth God's way. We want you to steward your wealth God's way. But you've got to take the Bible's warning seriously. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not money, but the love of it. What man does whenever their heart is set on money is we dismiss others. We objectify people. We marginalize people. We ignore the call of what that money perhaps has been given to us for, which is to be a blessing to others in their time of Need And as a result of it, money becomes the idol and the aim and the goal of life, which means life becomes shallow and wind. It's been a great series, lots of amens, <laughs> lots of excitement. Uh, we talked about not only the love of money being a warning we need to adhere to, but that there's a purpose for money. That money is a means for us to worship and honor God and bless others. That was week two. And then last week we talked about the fact that God has put you on this earth with many resources, not just so you can, uh, with those resources, have a good retirement or live a life that's nice and comfortable, but God's intent would be that with the time that God has given you, the resources that God has given you, and the talents that God has given you, that you would offer them to God and by a spirit they would be multiplied for something that would be of eternal value uh, in the end of your life, there will be something that you've done with things that are uh, time-stamped in this side of creation that would actually matter. And so we asked some hard questions about, are you multiplying what God has given you for something that will matter in his kingdom, or is it only multiplication for your retirement, your bank account, and the lifestyle that you are seeking to fund? Again, it was a great humdinger of a sermon, and everyone loved it and said amen at the end of it. It's been such an encouraging series. Uh, so today... I want to talk to you about getting out of debt and why you should get out of debt, but I, I want to set it up by giving you a vision for why debt cannot exist if you want to live a godly life when it comes to wealth. So we're going to talk about a vision, we're going to talk about an enemy, if you've not figured that out, it's going to be debt, it's not your friend, and then we're going to talk about making a plan, which is something none of us are used to doing with sermons, like actually doing something with it. Um, so it'll be really fun for some of us because the expectation is that in the hearing of the sermon, we would end by actually moving off of this thing that I like to call a smudget to this thing called a budget. It's really cool. So, um, uh, vision first. If we have been impacted by Jesus, we then have been called as a result of that impact, not because we are good or we're responding, but because the impact of meeting Jesus we then are propelled to living a generous life. We serve a generous God, and whenever you impact our generous God, the impact is you become a generous follower of God. So here, here's a question I would ask you to consider from the outset. 
have you recognized and are you currently recognizing the generosity of the Savior to you? Not, not in a general sense. Not in a, yes, his mercy is great, his grace is good. Because there's plenty of times that we are fully aware of his mercy and his grace, yet we feel like we are distant from God or cold-hearted towards God, all because we still, gener- in our minds, are not generous, uh, are, not, are not seeing his generosity towards us. Have you recognized in this season of life the generosity of the Savior? I want to put a definition up of what generous means so that you can get an understanding of this word and we're going to study it from a biblical standpoint. A generous definition of a person is showing a readiness to give more of something as of money or time than is strictly necessary or expected. So, so for a generous people, and we've been encountered by a generous God, it means that there is a readiness to give more than expected, to go above the call of duty, to go above what would be anticipated by those that come into contact with you. So the aim, the vision for the life of a believer is that we would live our life with the things that God has given us, open-handed to God in a generous response to the generosity that filled our hands, to the generosity that allowed us to lift our hands, to the generous Savior that gives us breath in our lungs so that we can then live a life to his glory and not to his dis honor, and shame. The goal is that we would be a generous people. The problem is is that most of us, if we're being honest, don't think that we're super generous, but we don't think that we're super greedy. So we're neither extreme, we're just in the mushy middle. Like if you were to ask yourself, self, am I generous? You'd probably be like, well, I'm not as generous as, and you would start to make a list. That's what most of us do. There's some people that are more generous than me who uh, tend to give in a, in a significant way of their time, their resources. They're so kind. They're so considerate. They're so others-focused. Uh, and I'm not them, but I'm not Ebenezer Scrooge from the Christmas Carol. And so we like to put ourselves somewhere in the middle. In fact, I, I would submit to you, and you've heard me say this perhaps before, that no one in this house thinks that they actually struggle with the sin of greed, although it's listed as a sin in the Bible. No one thinks the way I'm living, the way I'm consuming, the way that I'm prioritizing my time is actually greedy and dishonoring to God and dishonoring to my neighbor. In fact, church history tells us that no one thinks that they're greedy. Because in all of the annuals of church history, there is one case in the 1600s of someone being disciplined for the sin of greed. One. You can find one case. I looked in all of history that I could find. I found one case in the 1600s of a group of people that had agreed to sell uh, at a, a certain profit percentage, and the guy added an extra percent to what he was selling, and they disciplined him in the church because he was being greedy. Here's, here's my point. Most of us think that, think that we will accident, accidentally fall in to a life that is generous. We'll fall into it when we hit the lottery. We'll fall into it when we're older and we don't have kids that bring up unexpected bills consistently in our life. We'll fall into it whenever we get to a certain economic status. But I, I want to communicate to you something very clear from the Bible today, and that is generous people are intentional people. It is not accidental. It is never accidental that you run into a generous person. That person has been uh, captured with a vision, ha- has been uh, planning in advance of a paycheck to put themselves in a position to be generous and others focused before they ever received what they now are being generous with. Generosity is never accidental. And it comes from, first and foremost, an example. So let me give you some truths about generosity from the Bible that hopefully encourage and help you understand how to move from maybe the greed side of the spectrum 
towards living a more generous life to the glory of God. Number one, if we are generous, it's because who we follow is generous. Christian generosity is not guilt. It's not motivated by I ought to or I shoulds. Christian generosity is motivated by a clear picture of a generous Savior that has now given us the, will, the willingness to take what has mattered so much before we have seen him and go, you know what? It's fading away. It's fading away. When I have a clear view of Jesus, when I have a clear view of how he's been generous to me, that enables me to be generous to others. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 7 and 8, Jesus sends out the disciples after he calls them. If you're ever in a trivia night and someone's asking you to name the 12 disciples and you don't have it right off the tip of your tongue, Matthew 10 is a good earmark. That'll get you there quick. It's in the first few verses. So out of the crowd, Jesus calls the 12. Then he sends them out to go and do the ministry that they've witnessed him doing in the crowd. And he says this in verse 7, go and announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, Cure those with leprosy and cast out demons. Okay, how many Baptists in this room start reading this and you get nervous and you're like, man, that, that's, that's tough, right? I, I just want to submit to you. I, I, it seems like we either have these leanings of we're so charismatic that we, we get ourselves in trouble because we build platforms that build up our pride and ego about how powerful and how much of a super Christian we are. Or the other option is we almost are, 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 are Jesus' PR plan when suffering and pain seems to win a day. And you don't see a healing and you don't see transformation take place. So then you stop praying for healing. Your prayers get cautious. Like, like I, I just want to submit to you that we cannot allow the extremes of denominations and other people and experience to, to make us afraid to pray. I, let me just stick there for a second. What are you afraid to pray for God to do right now in your life? Like, what, 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 what miracle are you afraid to ask him to move in, in your life? I mean, I, I, my fear is that in the fear of not wanting to pray, it's exposing a lack of faith that God will. I mean, think about what they're being sent to do. Go and look for sick people and start praying over them and heal them. Go and crash funerals. I'm going to be honest with you. I've done a lot of funerals. Never had a resurrection. They've never gotten out of the box. Yet I serve a God that can and sometimes still will. And I get some of our theologists, well, the Bible was canonized. This was to prove that the kingdom of God had come and we needed this, but now with the sufficiency of the word. I'm sorry. I've been on enough mission trips to know that around the world, even when they have access to the Bible, the Holy Spirit still doesn't listen to your rules. And he still does stuff. And I get it. People, people have uh, monetized the work of God like Simon the Sorcerer in the book of Acts. They've, they've, they've abused the work of it by making it a work of man. It wasn't the power of God at work. And as a result, like we're then hesitant to this. But I want you to consider that we have a Savior that's sending his disciples out. And, and they're in response to the woes of the world to take the authority of the kingdom of heaven. And, and they're to... Allow that to be seen and, and for it to lay weight and bear on the circumstances that are going on around it. And I, and I believe that in America, we've just gotten to a point where we're either just afraid of this or, or it's about the ego. And it's amazing how all the well, good-looking people are put in the front and all the paralyzed people end up in the back at some of these events I've been to. He sends them out. 
because I'm meddling and I'm off topic. Heaven's near, heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, and cast out demons. And here's the line. Give as freely as you have. They are giving nothing that they've not already received from Christ. That's generosity. That's what Christian generosity is. I'm taking what God has given me, and I'm extending it to the neighbors that are around me. That is the entire point. Generosity is not, hey, you've got a lot of money, be generous. No, no, it's God has provided for you in an exponential way. Therefore, since it came from God, open your hands and be generous towards your neighbors. Since everything belongs to God, Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. Since everything is rightfully his, we've been building up to this moment, folks, for weeks. Since everything is his, and you see and understand that my life, my time, my looks, or lack thereof, my voice, or lack thereof, whatever gifts I have, they all have come from a God who has generously lavished upon me grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. When that becomes the motivator, then you take what God has done generously to you and it becomes an extension through you. And it connects all the way back to the Old Testament call to the people of God that they would be blessed by God to be a blessing to others. I see Jesus clearly. I've been impacted by his generosity. And as a result of it, I extend that generosity to the neighbors that are around me. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he do you see the ways in which God has impacted you, changed you? He gave when he didn't have to give. He laid down his life when he didn't have to lay down his life. You're still breathing, and most of you did a lot of life this week, not to the glory or under the power and in submission to the Holy Spirit, and you're still here. Why? Because we serve a God who is gracious, who is slow to anger, who is merciful, how, how many of you have heard the person, they annoy you after a while because they're always saying it and go up to them like, how you doing? Better not deserve. Better not deserve. Better not deserve. Me and my family, better not deserve. I ate an egg sandwich last night. It was good. Better not deserve. <laughs> we serve a God that is given. His generosity then extends through us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, look at what it goes on to say. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. He showed his generosity through the life of Christ. The point I'm trying to make is if you have been loved by Jesus, you then surrendered to the Holy Spirit will love like Jesus. That's what happens. If you don't know that Jesus loves you, then you don't extend the love of Jesus through you. But when you've experienced the love of Jesus, when it's changed you, when it's hit you, when it's met you at your worst and it didn't leave you, then that kind of love sticks with you and it becomes something that begins to extend through you. If you have received grace from Jesus, then you surrender to the Holy Spirit will give grace like Jesus. If you have been served by Jesus, then you surrender to the Holy Spirit will serve others like Jesus. The byproduct is you get recognized when you've been with Jesus. The disciples, when Jesus got arrested, could not hide. Why? Because they had been with Jesus. And the impact of being around Jesus is that you stick out in the world that is around you. Does this make sense? So when you've been around a generous Savior, the byproduct, when surrendered to the Holy Spirit, is you become a generous believer. And you begin to extend his grace and mercy to other people around you. You see, if you have been blessed by Jesus, then you, and uh, when surrendered, you will bless others. You see, the two go hand in hand. What we give comes from what we've received and who we acknowledge and who gave it to us. It, when you acknowledge that it came from God, 
what you receive becomes something that you extend through your hands to others that are around you. If we are not giving out of what we have received, then we are at best not submitting to the Holy Spirit. And at worst, we are unsaved and religious people still attempting to earn the favor and salvation and righteousness of God that Jesus has offered to freely give. Think about it. How many of you are generous because it's a means for you to prove something, not a means of something you've already received? I'm proving I'm a Christian. I'm proving I'm really saved. I'm proving that I'm righteous. No, that's the first, that's, that's the first trap that Satan tried to get Jesus to fall into. If you are the son of God, prove it. We don't prove anything. We are something. And because we are something, we operate from what we are. And as a result of it, we are a generous people who have been generously saved. Therefore, we get to be generous. We don't do it because we have to prove it. We don't do it so that people think that we're generous. I don't care what the perception of people necessarily is. I'm more consumed with being what I am in Christ Jesus. This is making sense. See, the motivation for generosity as a follower of Christ is not guilt. It is not identity. I don't give so that I can get something and become something and build value of myself on something. For the believer, it's not about praise. I don't want your praise and attention of, oh, you did that. That's so amazing and so good. No, it's an example of the Savior's work in my life, through my life, as I become a blessing to others around my life. You see, the life of a follower of Jesus is a life that is marked by generosity because we follow a generous Savior. Are you generous? If not, the place that we start at is at the root, and the root is, am I close to Jesus? Am I seeing him clearly? Am I recognizing his blessings in my life today? And if I'm dismissing his blessings, and if I'm not seeing him clearly, and if I'm not trusting in him, then it's a sign of a relationship that is fractured and broken, not on his end, but on my end. And there's an opportunity for you and I to come back to our first love, Jesus, so that we can love him and be loved by him, and in seeing him, become more and more likely like him as we walk with him in life. Number two, generous people. Number one, generous people are generous because of who they follow. Number two, generous people are intentional about being generous. I believe that most people in this room intend to be generous in the future. Like if I were to say, how many of you, before you die, want to be generous? Raise your hands. Most of you probably raise your hands. We intend it. We intend it. Uh, I was watching a Netflix documentary about a court case between a, two Hollywood celebrities <laughs> recently. And in that court case, no matter which side you are, the pirate side or the female side, my, <laughs> there was a moment in the case where an old clip was brought up where one of the people spoke of intending to be generous and got absolutely raked over the court of public opinion because of the intent to be generous that was never followed through. That stuck out to me because there have been times in my life where I've intended things for the kingdom of God that I have forgotten about down the road. How many of you have put off for the last decade things that you intended to prioritize for the kingdom of God? Think about how many times we intend more than we actually do in our life. You see, most of us live the majority of our life with the intentions of generosity, but with little to no follow-through on being generous. Essentially, we pledge generosity that we never follow through on. But here's the problem. The Bible is clear that generosity is intentional. Isaiah chapter 32, verse 8 says this, But a generous man devises generous things, and by generosity he shall stand. 
a generous man devises generous things. The KJV says, the NKJV says, a generous man devises generous plans. Think about this. If you're generous, it means that you are preemptive in the planning stages on how you're going to be generous to others that are around you. So, so I asked this question to our church, and me and my wife do this annually. We annually sit down at the end of the year and we ask the question, God, what is your standard, not mine, what is your standard for generosity for us next year? We, we, we pray about it. We, we talk about it. We wrestle around the subject when it comes to time and money. Are we putting our time in the right place? Are we putting our money in the right place? Are we using our gifts in a way that God would say is generous and God honoring and people blessing around us? And we wrestle in it annually so that we can then make an intentional plan come January for how we're going to live a life of intentional generosity to people that are around us. I have several people that I've begun meeting with on a bi-weekly or weekly uh, basis, and, and we've just been talking through the Bible and working through life and everything, and, and it's funny because most of them apologize. We know you're busy. I'm like, no, no, no. We made a plan for this. I made a plan in my calendar for this, for you, for this moment right here because I believe that God is asking this of me in this season of my life. A generous man devises generous plans. You see, most of us intend something, but there's no planning all the A-type people said, amen, praise God, finally, tell my spouse, help them out. It's not enough to have good intentions. Good intentions need good plans. You have to think beyond just, well, we intend to get to that. We hope. Because what ends up happening when you hope is you just throw spare change offerings to God of time, of resource, and of talents. I'll just be honest with you. I don't even need to go to the Bible to make this statement very clear. I believe our God is worth more than the spare. I believe he's worth more than my leftover. A generous man devises generous plans. Here's the question. What is your plan for becoming more like your generous Savior in your life practice this year? What is your plan with your time, your talents, your resources? Not, not for the sake of the church, because you represent a kingdom and a king and a savior. What is your plan intentionally to move towards being more generous for your king and for his kingdom and for his name and for his renown this year? Generous people are intentional about being generous. Generous people have an example in Jesus. Number three, generous people prioritize generosity before payday. This was the hardest thing to learn. My wife and I uh, didn't give to the church consistently because we didn't think we could give to the church because we didn't make enough money. Now, um, here's the problem with that. That's not the way this works. <laughs> we start with God and then we work to bills and everything else. For most of us, we start with bills and everything else and then we get back to God. I'm not telling you about a standard of giving. I'm just telling you that God is to be preeminent in your giving. He sets the pace. He starts the, the conversation. It doesn't start with, God, here's what we have left. What do you want of it? It's, God, it all is yours. What would you have us do now that we know what you would have us do? Show us how to do this. It's God's leadership on the front end of the conversation, God being honored at the first fruits of the conversation, and God then leading you in how to do it on the back end of the conversation. 
Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22, as they're going into the land that's overflowing with milk and honey, and they're going to have crops and resources that they've never had before, God looks at his people and he says this in Leviticus chapter 23, 22, when you harvest the crops of your land, so notice it's future. It's not payday. It's not harvest season. When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields, and do not pick up what, uh, what the harvesters drop. Those are called the gleanings. Leave it for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. Before harvest comes, already know in your future spending plan, because a lot of us, we've already spent three raises from now what we think we're going to get. Some of you, have, it's not October, and the Christmas bonus has already been occupied by MasterCard. Some of you are going to end up with a Griswold Christmas because you thought you was going to be able to buy a pool. You already have plans and th- things drawn up, and next thing you know, it's not going to go, go well for you. I hope you got a cousin, Eddie. Before it comes, already have set aside, already have a plan for the corners and the gleanings, already have room and margin made for generosity. You see, obedience in your generosity makes space for a move of God. When you make a plan before payday comes to be generous, it makes space for God to move in your life. Uh, Let me give you a real-life, biblical, incredible story. There was this guy named Boaz, older, had been waiting on God to work on this thing that was going on in his soul. He was lonely. He had a great business. He had a lot of property. He was well-respected. He was a leader in the community. He had so much resource. Now, he had one of two paths he could go down. He could become greedy, or he could remain biblically faithful and generous. Boaz, luckily, thankfully, left the corners of his field and the gleanings of his field because of this verse for whoever would come into it. Well, that made space for a woman who had been through it named Ruth who was on the brink of starvation with her mother-in-law that she had stayed faithful to named Naomi to come into a field. And it just so happened, that's the way Ruth chapter 2 opens up, that as they walked into Jerusalem with so many doubt and uncertainty, it was the time of the barley harvest. And because Boaz was being obedient to the command of living a generous life because he served a generous God and followed a generous Lord, There was room for a woman like Ruth to come into his life. Here's my point. For some of you, because you've not made margin for generosity, you sit alone at night in your home. I'm not talking about dating and marriage relationships. I'm talking about this warning that we see with the rich and the wealth that comes to this isolation that doesn't allow them to be in community. So instead of blessing God and blessing others, what ends up happening is they build big fences and big houses and they sit in opposite corners of that house with the people that they're supposed to be in association with. And as a result of it, there's no community, there's loneliness, there's depression, there's bitterness, there's pain. And it was all meant, but it was all meant to be a place where they could be intimate, a place where they could make memories. That was the dream in building all the brick and the mortar. But what it's become is a place where we isolate and hide from each other instead of engaging in the life-giving relationships and community that God has blessed us with. How many of you right now in your life, due to a lack of generosity, and let's be honest, let's call it what it is, greed, have no margin and space for a move of God to take place in your life. Simple obedience today leads to you seeing radical moves of God tomorrow.
Simple obedience today leads to you seeing radical moves of God tomorrow. Now, here's the call. We've been called to live a life that is generous. I want to live a life that's generous. I believe that for many of you, you've been called to live a life that's generous. Let me tell you a little bit about my background and story. My wife and I have been given the opportunity to give away two cars and everything we own twice. It's been amazing. It all started in a book that many of you theologically may not like. I don't care. Written by a guy named Robert Morris from Gateway Church in Texas, and it's called The Blessed Life. It's not a prosperity gospel book at all. It's a book about him taking up a test of seeing if he could outgive God. And as a result, in the wrestling match, God blessed him significantly beyond what he ever dreamed to be possible. There was one day where he actually thought that he had outgiven God. And I know that you hear stories about televangelists and people that have jets and you think that they're sleazeballs and that kind of stuff. Robert Morris does not have a private plane, does not have a jet, but God gave him one one day whenever he thought that he was outgiving God. He ended up giving it to a mission organization that was flying missionaries home. Believe it or not, sometimes God gives the big resource to lots of people who actually use it for kingdom purposes and good. I was sitting at a small group with a guy named Rick Warren. He wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life. It's the second greatest selling book of all time. Uh, it's about a decade ago, and uh, we were, uh, it was a long time ago, because some of y'all theologically don't like him now and all that kind of stuff, and that's okay. Uh, my point is, like 10, 12 years ago, how many of you have read Purpose Driven Life in the room? Okay, that's part of the point. And people ask why, uh, would ask him, why, why do you think God let you, Rick, write that book? I remember this, I remember this, 20 pastors in a room, he said, I believe God let me write that book because he knew he could trust me with the money. And then he went on to tell us that he and Kay were living in the same house that they lived in back in the early 90s before he ever wrote Purpose Driven Life. He was wearing the same watch from Walmart that he bought before he ever wrote the Purpose Driven Life. And he was driving a 1994 Ford Ranger at the time that he had not changed even after writing the Purpose Driven Life. He and his wife had gone further. They believed that God had so, been so generous to them that they found a means and a way to stop taking a salary. He added up every dollar that Saddleback Church had ever paid him and he paid them back. Every dollar. So when the news reporter came, when Purpose Driven hit like this big thing and was making all this money, the reporter looked at him and said, how much do you make at your church? And he got to look at her and say, I've never made a dime. I've paid every dime that I've ever made back to the church. He and his wife then began to reverse tithe. They gave 90 and lived on 10. Those things began to motivate me and my wife. I want to live a life that's uncommon in God's eyes. I, I want to live a life that's great in God's eyes. Which, which means I've got to look at resources and wealth differently. So we've been called to live generously. The problem is, is for many of us, we are not open-handed because we are closed and handcuffed to this thing called debt. The average American household is approximately $145,000 in debt. Bank rate in 2020 of January said that only 41% of Americans could pay an unexpected bill of $1,000 out of their savings account. So how can you be generous when you're one flat tire away from a crisis? Debt is the nemesis to a life of generosity. Debt is also the American pastime. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 7, it says, The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 23, You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Romans 13, 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. You see, Debt and generosity are enemies of each other. You cannot grow in generosity and grow in debt at the same time. It's pulling in different directions. In order to increase your generosity, you will have to make a plan to decrease your debt. question comes to me frequently, well then does that mean all debt is bad? No, not necessarily. Some, some debt is necessary in order for you to buy a house, 
right? But I'll just be honest with you. I hate lease payments on cars. It's the stupidest thing ever created. It sucks up all of your margin in your money to be generous, and you get nothing in the end but the opportunity to drive another new car again. Why do you need it? These cars are like, have you heard of Toyota? Like they go for like 250,000 miles, like 300. I receive it in Jesus' name. Have you heard of Honda? I mean, I, my, my, my point is, if your stuff is your status and your identity, then we've already got a bigger problem. You can't be generous when you've got to be the world champ everywhere you go. When you've got to be seen as being successful everywhere you go. Here's some rules for debt that I've learned from some wise people. Number one, if you need to go into debt, do so only when absolutely necessary. Vacations are not necessary. Debt increases. It's not. We really need a getaway. Here's a really cool idea, okay? They have these things called state parks. They're almost free. I know. We're hotel kind of people. I mean, you may not really need a vacation then. If you've got time to be picky, you ain't hungry. If you really need a respite, but you've got to be picky about your respite and how and where it comes, then you ain't that much in need of rest. you still got enough fighting you need to argue about how you need to rest. I can only rest on Fripp Island. Well, honey, your budget can't get, take you to Fripp Island, so you need to chill out. Some of y'all need to fall back in love with Dirty Myrtle because it's right in line with you living a generous life. It's where you're at. We want to go to Fripp. Well, you have to save up for a little bit for that. That's not a necessary debt expenditure. Eating out on a Thursday night because you don't want to go home and make a ham sandwich? It's not necessary. I get it. I'm meddling way more than a lot of you would want me to. If you need to go into debt, do so only when absolutely necessary. Number one. Number two, borrow only what is needed. There are some debtors, and they're really good at it. They're like, you, you only want 20, but you've been approved for 27000 How many of you have ever had a credit card have its interest limit raised on you without asking? You know why? They want to keep the handcuff on you. So you think, oh, we got to have this because our credit's great. No, they want you to have this because they don't ever want you to stop making payments to them. That's the way this works. We've gotten so practical that it's gotten silent. Borrow only what is needed when you have to go into debt. Number three, if you go into debt, do so for an asset that can increase in value. House. Right? That makes sense. A business loan. Right? Stepping out in faith and starting a business. That's not bad debt. Now, you, you may not need to make it like whatever that bougie coffee place is down in Greer on the corner. You might have to do the one that's up the block that's a little bit more like the Friends-looking coffee place from the mid-'90s. But my, my point is, so you know exactly what I'm talking about, yeah? My, my, my point is, that's not necessarily a bad debt. Number three, if you go into debt, do, do for an asset that increases value. Number four, repay it as quickly as possible. So before you start enjoying it, like the first paychecks come in, you're like, yeah, we're going to blow it. You know, you might just need to go to Chili's and not select. Like that may be a plan, right? Proverbs chapter 37, verse, uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27 and 28 says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due and when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow. I will give it when you have it with you. So, so do good when you've been blessed. Repay the debts that you have. Number five. Not paying back what you owe is a poor testimony to Jesus, and that's who we ultimately are to represent in everything that we're doing, and that's the goal. 
Psalm 37 verse 21 says, The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. The righteous is generous and gives. If you want to live a generous life, you've got to get rid of debt. So you've got to make a generosity plan, and then you've probably got to create a debt elimination plan. What does that mean? There's this thing called budgeting. Budgeting is where you look at what you bring in versus the fixed bills that you have. You figure out your margin. You figure out where you can cut. And then you begin to operate that budget as a law on yourself so that you can live in freedom from debt and be open-handed towards your God. Now, most of you, you make enough to not have to actually count what you spend. Which is why you're one crisis of $1,000 or more away from being in debt at 17 to 33%, which is the going rate on credit cards right now. So make a budget and then celebrate it. My favorite thing we ever did with our kids is they, my kids have a problem. It's an addiction that we've created. It's called Chick-fil-A. And my daughter bamboozled her grandparents who pick her up on different days of the week to take her to Chick-fil-A twice. And we have a standing Bible study that she and I do on Friday mornings at Chick-fil-A. So I sat down to her with her between Monday and Friday, and I said, how many times have you been here this week? She said, three. I was like, girl, you know how blessed you are? You've been to Chick-fil-A three times in five days? Like, do you, do you get how blessed you are? But my favorite thing to do is whenever we uh, got on our budget, we began to sit at home, and I would look at her, and I would go, hey, uh, our kids, and they'd be like, oh, it's not Chick-fil-A. Why can't we go out? Why can't we do this? And I had to look at them. I was like, hey, because mom and dad are going to get out of debt, because mom and dad are going to honor God, and because we as a family are going to use resource and wealth to bless God and bless others. That's why. And they're like, because, I mean, when you're six, what do you say to that? I don't. <laughs> if you're going to live a generous life, you've got to get out of debt, make a debt plan. Finally, if you want to live a generous life, check your greed. Check your greed. Greed is the unchecked lust for more. It's very similar to the biblical principle of coveting. Coveting is lusting for the possessions or gifts of another. So greed involves wanting an object. Coveting involves wanting it from the owner's hand. I believe that the path to coveting other's stuff starts with unchecked greed in the spirit. You kill your greed or it'll lead to coveting. You kill your greed or it'll cause you to kill or ignore or dismiss your neighbor. Do me a favor. Look at your neighbor really quick and just ask him, neighbor, are you greedy? If it's a we, go ahead and ask them, are we greedy? Are we greedy? Sound of repentance all over the room. I'm serious. I want you to ask that question this week. God, am I greedy? Am I misusing what you've blessed me with? And instead of being open-handed to you, I've become closed-handed with my routine. God, God, God am, I, am I living a life that may count for my goals but doesn't count for your eternal principles and values and won't matter on the life? Like, God, am I becoming self-interested and consumed to the point that I am off mission with living the life that you have called me to live? It's a hard question. Here's what I believe. He is rich in grace. He is rich and generous in mercy. 
And the point of me bringing this to you as a vision for a life that we can live is not to shame you or to guilt you or to obligate you, but is to simply draw you to the heart of a father that when you know him and his generosity will lead to you living a life that looks generous in a way that we cannot explain apart from relationship with him. Our prayer team is going to be in the front. If you need prayer for anything, if you're hurting, if you're suffering, we want to pray with you. We want to pray for you. So prayer team, you come. If you need to repent, that's a common posture in this church. We bend our knee openly before God, proclaiming and professing our absolute need of God. My goal is that in some small way, through the hearing of this word and the worship today, you become more desperate for Jesus. As you leave here, more than you were when you came in. You move as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.